sang uh, some songs today, and those songs that we sang, I mean, it just, the goal is to give you guys just like a glimpse of who God is, right? Like we want you to understand first and foremost, like that God obviously created all things, but he's also in charge of all things. Um, he is in that in being in charge of all things. He is the one that knew that the problem with us, the problem with me is that I'm a sinner and I have a disconnect with him. So just inherently, I come into this world and I have a disconnect with God. And no matter what I do, there's going to be some stuff that gets in the way. There's going to be the pride of my life. There's going to be the desires of my flesh. There's going to be the desires of my eyes. I'm just going to have these problems that are inherent with being a human being. And God, knowing those things from the very beginning of time and also from the very beginning there, whenever he created man in the garden and seeing how man reacted in the garden, uh, he knew that we are going to have this problem of these desires that we're going to be to ultimately to be like God, to have these desires to have knowledge like God, to have these desires to control God, okay, to control the creator of the universe. And so because of these desires that are inherent in every single one of our lives, there's nothing outside of the grace of God that I can do that isn't in some way, shape, or form selfish. And there's a lot that might want to argue with that, but the reality is, is that no matter what I do, if it's not ultimately for the glory of God, then it's for the glory of me. God has no gray area in that. It's either for his glory or for my glory. And so if it's not for his glory, then I have to check myself and everything that I do. And one of the ways that's very simple is to wake up every morning and I look in the mirror. And the reality is, is if I'm not looking, instead of looking in the mirror at myself, I've got to almost look up and say, okay, God, what do you have for me to do? Otherwise, I'm looking in the mirror and I'm saying, okay, JJ, what are we doing today? That's the wrong way to approach that day. And then ultimately, there I am, I've already started the day. And that's proof that it's all about me. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't wake up in the morning and say, okay, I do actually need to brush my hair. Not, you see, I, I shave, so I don't have to worry about that. But some of you, you might have to do that in the morning. So yeah, sure. Okay. Appearance wise, you can do those. But ultimately, if I'm not waking up in the morning saying, okay, God, it's all about you, then there's sin. Okay. That's just it in its easiest form. Uh, when we were doing Good News Club, I was in college up in the panhandle. We used to describe this as anything that I think, anything that I say, or anything that I do that displeases God or makes him sad. So we'd have the kids do do that. But anyway, so that was the easy way to describe sin, but that's still the case, is that that's what sin is. And sin creates a disconnect with us from God. And so we've got this great little set of colors here. So I'm going to grab that. <laughs> All right. I'll get in trouble if I don't use one of you today. Who wants to hold it? All right. So since Ethan chose the easier of the jobs, Jules, can you tell me what does the red represent? God's blood. Yeah, so this is the blood of Jesus. So we have black, which is sin. Okay, no matter what I do, just imagine, okay, I can try to, I'm not going to cover this up on my own. If, I, if, I'm, if Ethan's holding it and I say, Ethan, cover up all of the sin that you can so that way we don't see any, you're still going to see a portion of this black circle. It's, it's no matter what you do, you can't cover it up. You can try, you can try your best, but you're not going to completely cover that up. Now, what could I do if I wanted to completely cover this up? I could throw it in fire and that would get rid of it. And um, the Bible tells us that's how God's ultimately planning to get rid of sin one day is that he does have 
the Lake of Fire Reserve. That would be hell, that separation from him, just going to say. That's one route. Then there's another route, and Joel shared with us that that's God's blood. And and the blood of Jesus is just like anything else, a coat that I put on, the shirt that I put on, anything that I put on, the blood of Jesus, that's what I'm going to approach God with, is that Jesus, by his blood, allows for me to be completely covered, to completely be completely shrouded. Now I can walk before uh, God the Father, and he sees not me, but he sees the blood of Jesus. And so in my life, that's why Jesus came, so that I could have a relationship with God through his blood. Through trusting in him as Lord and Savior of my life, I have the blood of Jesus covering me. So now God no longer sees the black, okay? He sees the blood of Jesus. And whenever I step before God, he's going to make me completely brand new in heaven for all of eternity. But for right now on earth, I still got to struggle with this problem of sin. But I've got the blood of Jesus that can help me through it and make the right decisions but I still am going to struggle while I'm here. One day I'm not going to have to struggle, but right now I've got to struggle. Maybe you kind of resonate with me on that. You understand there are struggles in life. We all got to deal with them. And I look forward to this next thing, which is this yellow strip. And so anytime I see the color yellow, Jules, what does yellow remind me of? Do you remember? Heaven. Why why would yellow remind me of heaven? Uh, The streets of gold is one thing, right? And so heaven is just perfect, pure, All right, just like gold, if you continuously run it through fire and purify it, you will get to a point where you've got pure gold. And so heaven, though, is pure. And God has in his purity. He does not want to have any sin whatsoever to tarnish that purity. He doesn't want to have any sin right now to tarnish his name on earth. Okay, in the Old Testament, we see any time that a a priest did something, a guy that was set apart of God in the Old Testament especially, did something that for even a moment, tarnish the purity of God, he took them out, right? Especially at the very beginning when he's got the Israelites and he's really trying to train and teach them who he is, even to burn the wrong kind of fire with incense, he takes them out because that's ruining and tarnishing his purity. So he doesn't want to have his purity tarnished, but in heaven for sure, it's going to be completely pure. There's something to look forward to. We don't have to deal with any of the junk on earth, um, but in the future, we'll have heaven. But so we've got our sin, which separates us from God. We've got the blood of Jesus, which allows for me to walk into this purity of God. And it'd be really great if after I give my life to Jesus, he just took me and we just went on and I just now I'm in perfect perfection. I'm in the purity of God. I don't have to deal with sin on earth anymore. But God has chosen to leave us here for the reason that we see this green. And so whenever you see the color green, Jules, what's something you think of? The growing. And so God has given us the ability to grow. We not only have the ability to grow closer with each other, but we have the ability to grow closer with him. So if we grow closer with each other and we leave God out of it, then we still have sin that's going to get in the way. But if we grow closer with God, he causes us to grow closer with others. And now all of a sudden that relationship begins to look a little bit differently. Now, um, Ethan, appreciate it. I'm going to have you hold on to that though. So you can sit down with the disc. You don't have to hold it the whole time. It's not as heavy as the rock, right? Yeah. So some might remember that one. So anyways, what we're going to do is we're going to go into the word of God this morning. But, um, and I've got like this great thing of notes and I'm going to do my best to, to follow them because I was studying uh, this area that I w- I'm in in the book of John and pretty cool stuff in John. But we came out of Luke and Pastor Eddie started preaching through Luke. And while he was preaching through Luke, We hit this moment in Luke, okay? So Jesus is born in Luke. 
okay, the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is baptized in the Gospel of Luke, and he's tempted in the wilderness in the Gospel of Luke. And then all of a sudden, Luke kind of does this weird jump in the Gospel where Jesus is going, and he's on his way, and he gets to Nazareth, which is his hometown. And when he gets to Nazareth, he appears there in Nazareth, and he says something that just really makes everyone mad. He's like, hey, you guys want a sign? I'm not giving you any miracles and signs. And actually, I'm here not just for you Jewish people, but I'm here for the Gentiles as well. He says, you guys have had your chance. You had your chance with all the prophets. You had your chance with Isaiah, which actually what prompts this is he was reading in this book in Luke at this point. He was reading from the gospel or from the prophet Isaiah. And he says, all this has been fulfilled, but now I'm also going to be, God is going to these Gentiles. Anyway, so these people in Nazareth have heard about the signs of Jesus and they want to see a sign and they want to see Jesus do something amazing. And Jesus says, no, it's not for you. It's not just for the Jews. God's decided to incorporate the nations. And I'm here to do that. And they get so mad that they push Jesus toward a cliff. And then all of a sudden, the book of Luke, and we'll eventually get here. It's really cool. But the book of Luke says Jesus just simply passed through the crowd. And then they were, I mean, could you imagine being the guy that was at the forefront pushing Jesus? And then all of a sudden Jesus isn't being pushed and you're being pushed. <laughs> no, I, I, be, um, I, I wouldn't want to be at the front pushing Jesus off a cliff, but somebody was just think about that. Um, so, so Jesus passes through the crowd, but the, the thing of Luke is that we go from the wilderness Okay, Jesus being tempted, so now Jesus is in Nazareth, but yet everybody's heard about these amazing things Jesus has done. And so we're taking a break at the moment. Pastor Eddie has preached through, we did communion last week, but Pastor Eddie did the uh, part of Nicodemus in John chapter 3 the week before. And so we're using this portion of John. We've got John chapter 2, John chapter 3, John chapter 4, and that kind of shows what Jesus did in the being tempted in the wilderness moment and going to Nazareth moment, there's a transition, there's a road that he has to walk. And in that walk, Jesus has done some pretty amazing things. He's performed some miracles. And so just shortly after Jesus walks in front of John the Baptist uh, at some point, whether it was after the wilderness or not, but he walks in front of John the Baptist and John the Baptist says, hey, look, that's the son of God walking in front of us right now. And immediately he's got some disciples of his, John the Baptist does, that just leave John the Baptist and start walking after Jesus. They're like, John, you've been telling us there's a God that's better that's coming and you just told us that he's it. So see you later. And they just take off and they start walking. And the Bible actually tells us uh, that that was Andrew. And Andrew went to go find his brother, Simon Peter, uh, but also an unnamed person in the book of John, uh, along with Andrew, an unnamed person is likely John, the one that wrote the gospel, because he doesn't really feel like naming himself. I guess he just wanted to be humble. But either way, this other guy walks on. Later on, this guy, Philip, meets Jesus, and Philip meets Jesus in a city, and Philip's like, oh, I got to go tell my brother Nathaniel. So he runs off, and he tells Nathaniel, and Nathaniel scoffs, and he's like, man, what good could come out of Nazareth? And Jesus comes up, and, you know, Philip brings Nathaniel to Jesus, and he's like, oh, man, wow, look at this really righteous guy that's walking my way. And Nathaniel's like, you know who I am? That wasn't arrogant at all, right? But anyways, Nathaniel's like, you know who I am? And Jesus is like, dude, before Philip even showed up underneath of that fig tree and talked to you about me, I was there and I knew who you were. And Nathaniel just loses his mind. He's like, wow, you're the son of God. That's, I mean, just like that light bulb goes off. 
He's like, you're the guy, you're the Messiah, I'm following you too. And so immediately Jesus has these close guys that we'll call disciples that have decided to follow underneath of Jesus. So there's two different groups that are going to be following Jesus at all times. There's his disciples, which are the ones that are kind of getting special revelation about who Jesus is. He kind of is the one, the disciples are the ones that find themselves in the the tight, dark rooms where Jesus is like telling them the secret things of God. Like, hey, you saw me do this. Well, this is what this means. So the disciples really got a good like download of who Jesus was and what God wanted to teach. The crowds, on the other hand, the crowds are the ones that just simply are constantly seeing what Jesus is doing. They have just as much opportunity to follow Jesus closely, but oftentimes they just are there and they find themselves going about the motions of life. Oh, Jesus is in town or Jesus is a couple miles away. Let's get in our minivan and travel and follow and find Jesus, right? So um, that's the crowds. But we're going to find ourselves today in uh, the Gospel of John, and eventually this clicker will get me where I need to go. There we go. All right, in the Gospel or the Gospel of John, and it says John chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. That's inaccurate because I don't know how to type early in the morning whenever I'm typing up what I've got on my page here. It's John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, because John chapter 3 would take us back to what Pastor Eddie already preached. So this is John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. But the point of what we're going to look at, it's going to be a wedding that Jesus is going to attend. And uh, Jesus is going to attend a wedding in John chapter 2, a wedding at Cana. And uh, the point that I want you to see from this wedding is that Jesus has the power to change you. He has the power to change me. He did. He continuously does every day. Different changes have to happen. But Jesus has the power to do that. And uh, one of the cool things that you'll see is that Jesus has the power to change us. It's just simply by his will. Just he wants it to happen so it can happen. So, um, but anyway, so let's look at John chapter two, starting in verse one. It says the next day, and this is like I said, Jesus is traveling. So this is actually day three from Jesus traveling from seeing John the Baptist. Just so you know where John the Baptist was historically preaching at, like this is a, this is a hauling of a hike that Jesus has just done with his disciples. Um, where he's traveled from is about 60 miles. Uh, if you're going on the good road, um, looking on Google Maps, which probably wasn't the same road back then. But either way, this is about 60 miles. We're going to Cana from down where John the Baptist was at um, outside of Jerusalem, but near the Jordan River. And so there's a haul of a hike that they've taken. Jesus goes one place and he rests where he's kind of staying um, for an evening. Then they travel another day. And now on the third day of this travel, they arrive at this wedding in Cana. So Jesus wanted to go to a wedding. All right. So next day, there was a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. And this says that Jesus's mother was there. All right. And Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. Now, that's some short notice, right? Because Jesus's disciples, I mean, he just got them. So first off, there's no email, right? Like no email invitation. Hey, by the way, give me a plus three. Um, You know, but Jesus and his disciples were invited. So likely, Jesus shows up in Cana, and he is already invited to the wedding. And then the guy says, oh, you've got a couple guests with you? They can come too. And that's hospitality in Israel. That's the hospitality of the Jewish culture. People show up, they're invited in. Guy wandering around in the desert or walking by, you see him walking off in the distance, you should run to him and invite him in for a glass of water or something to eat. 
Okay, you see that in the Old Testament, it happens a lot. But at the same time, here's this moment where Jesus is invited to this wedding celebration. He's already on his way there. When he shows up, he's got people with him. They're invited to be there as well. And so they're invited to a wedding. Jesus is happy to be there. And then in verse three, oh my goodness, nothing worse could happen, but the wine supply ran out during the festivities. And so Jesus's mother told him they have no more wine. And that is literally the one of the worst things that can happen, all right? This is a marriage ceremony, like festival. This is happening after the actual marriage. It could go on for seven days. This is a full-on blown-out party, and everybody will be talking about it for a very long time, no matter what, especially if you mess up. So the person in charge of this, by the way, of this, this wine or the food and all that is the groom. So the groom is in charge of making sure that all of his guests are taken care of. And the way the groom throws the party for his bride that he's just now married will reflect on her and how he loves her and how he feels about her and her family for the rest of his life. The wine has run out. This is a big deal, just so you know. So I just want you to see something real quick. We have Nisuin, which is the marriage. Okay, Nisuin in Hebrew, like this is the marriage. Before that, way back, Man finds girl or man's, you know, mom and dad or whoever, or matchmaker, somebody finds girl and they say, this would be a great person for you to marry. They do a little negotiation. Maybe a goat or something is exchanged. Either way, you get, you get this and you have this shitty queen. Okay. So this is the time of commitment. We've come together. Okay. We've agreed that there is me and you are going to get married. Okay, there is this agreement that happens, all right? And it is way, way easier, I guess. I don't know. I, I just feel like, why couldn't that have just been how it went? All right, Ashley, you know what? We're going to get married. Oh, there we go. It's been settled. We're agreed on. Let's just kind of wait. No, there, there's no like work involved, I don't think. I mean, it just seems simple. There's an agreement, time of commitment. But this is the, this is the way the culture works. For marriage, there's a time of commitment, and it's a husband, the future husband, and the future spouse. Like they're agreeing, okay, yeah, we're going to be committed to each other. And so, in that time of commitment to each other, they have the mikvah. So, mikvah is the ceremonial washing. They actually go through a cleansing. It's a physical cleansing, but it's also a spiritual cleansing of each individual separately going and taking the ceremonial cleansing, where they actually wash in preparation for this or the marriage canopy. They get under it. And so they get under this marriage canopy. And now in this marriage canopy, again, you have kind of essentially this, hey, we are really solidifying the fact that we are getting married. Before all these people in the community, we promise to go through this yersin time of betrothal. And that took as long as the man took to get everything ready. So it was completely ball in his court, and it was his father that had to tell him, yeah, you've gotten everything ready, and you're ready to go get your bride. And just like you find all throughout the Old Testament, there's this idea of like the ten virgins. There's a story about that, and keeping your lamps trimmed and burning, and like at any point, your husband could come to take you away, this man. Like there's stories that Jesus will tell about the kingdom of God, and it all applies to these things like that go along with marriage, okay? But in this moment, Okay, this betrothal moment, if the husband, the future husband, if his dad turned around and said, dude, you've been working late into the night, 
the house is ready, your land is ready, you've got everything that you need set for your bride, you're allowed to go get her and marry her. If it was middle of the night, I know for a fact that I would have gone and got Ashley. I would not have waited a moment because there is nothing else that needs to happen but for me to simply take my bride home at this moment. This betrothal, the wedding whole like up standing in front of the altar thing, and then all of a sudden they were, we like condense it to a very short ceremony. This is, you stand, you essentially have this ceremony underneath of this canopy, then you go out and you kind of prepare things, and then all of a sudden, the moment you get the go-ahead, now I get to take my bride home. So there is no rushing off and having this crazy long honeymoon and, all right, honey, now we got to figure out how to do life. No, he's already got it prepared, and the, hus the husband's father okay, is the one that says, you're now allowed to go and get her. And boom, he's off. I mean, I'm not waiting. If he's waiting, there's a problem, right? Like, guys, amen. All right, so anyways, there's, uh, he's gone, he's going to get her. And now that marriage, the Nisuin, that happens because there's an actual covenant that gets established as a man and a wife once you take your wife home. And then after that marriage covenant happens, the next, whatever, maybe it's within the next week or whatever, but you're having a party in honor of her. And if you let your wine run out, you haven't prepared. And that reflects poorly on her. That reflects poorly on your love for her. And everybody knows about it. And you're in trouble because you've got to now live with her for a long time. And she is going to tell you every day you go out in public and she gets that look of mm, your husband didn't have enough wine. That's forever until you die. Like you're praying, God, come on, right? So anyway, so there's this that's happened. Now you understand hopefully why wine running out is a big deal. It's not because they were just looking to party. It's because it reflects poorly on the bride and the groom and the whole family and the preparation that's been done. It's been poorly planned. So John chapter 2, <clears throat> as I lose my voice, Michael finds some water. Thank you, Taylor Twins, for that. Um, but anyways, John chapter 2, let's go into verse 4 here. <clears throat> so Jesus, talking to Mary, who's his mom, says, Dear woman, that's not our problem, talking about the wine. Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. Now, Jesus is not being like mean to mom. When he says, dear woman, it's more like the nice way of saying, oh, dear lady or ma'am, like, no, no, ma'am. Sorry, no, ma'am. Like that's, that's proper in Southern speak, right? So he's saying that kind of, it's like, excuse me, ma'am, not referring to her as mom, which is important. And I'll tell you why in a second, but you might be able to figure it out in yourself. So that's not our problem. My time has not yet come. So who is the one that told Jesus when his time was supposed to come? God, the Father. So Jesus says, I've not been told by God. You just told me this problem. You actually wouldn't have even needed to tell me this problem, by the way. I would have already known. But he's saying, I've not been told to do anything about this yet. And in this moment, you might be my mom, okay, as far as everyone knows. But for the context of everybody to come in the future, I want you to know that you do not dictate what I do. And that's going to maybe not resonate with certain individuals, depending who you know. But Mary does not dictate what Jesus does. Then, 
which is shown here, or at any time after. Mary has no hold on what happens with Jesus. Jesus shows us that by saying, dear woman, that's not our problem. Mary, you just told me to do something, but I do not have to do anything regarding your request right now. Because my time has not yet come. The Father has not told me to do anything. God has not told me to do a thing. So Mary asks for something. Jesus says, listen, my time hasn't come yet. Just like any good mom, though, his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you to do, right? Now, what if Jesus would have said to the servants, you know, just continue to serve the guests. Don't actually, just don't worry about it. Go ahead. Nothing's going to happen. Mary actually was trusting that whatever was going to happen was exactly at that moment what God the Father would tell Jesus to do. And if Jesus dismissed the servants, that's exactly what Jesus told them to do. So that's what God told Jesus to do. So you see that? So Mary's trusting God still in this and says, all right, fine, Jesus. Okay, servants, whatever Jesus says to do, you do it. And if he dismisses you, he dismisses you. But if he tells you to do something different, no matter how crazy it seems, you're going to do it. That's what she asked the servants to do. So, so Mary does actually have some pull at this feast, this reception, this ceremony. She does have something going on where she's in charge or she, the servants are willing to listen to her. Uh, but anyway, so his mother tells the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. So Jesus isn't being harsh, but at the same time, Mary does say something I think that's super important for us to remember. And that's whenever it comes to Jesus, we should do whatever he tells us to do because we're his servants. So don't lose that. If you've got a thing to underline it, I would say underline, do whatever he tells you to do. That's important. Jesus knows what he needs to do, right? He knows what needs to be done. He knows exactly what God the Father needs to do. So in verse 6, uh, we go and we says, standing nearby were six stone water jars used for Jewish ceremonial washing, and each could hold 20 to 30 gallons. Now, I read one commentator that was really loving this verse simply because John decided to show us that, you know, hey, it's okay for us to kind of say, oh, there was about 20 to 30 gallons. There's no exact number here. It looked big enough. John recalling what it is that he saw, he's like, it was about 20 to 30 gallons, somewhere in that range. There's a big jar, all right? So anyways, the commentator really loved that because there you go. There's a realistic thing that you would say as a person, right? There's no exact number here. This is John just saying, yeah, it was about that range. But anyway, so these ceremonial washing jars are about 20 to 30 gallons. And uh, I think that it's super important. We should look at the fact that these were stone washing jars that were used for ceremonial washing. And so Old Testament ceremonial washing, what did water do for you? Right? What did washing in a basin outside of the temple, what did that ultimately do for you? The day starts off and the day starts off for you as a priest and you've got to go forward and you've got to wash. And as you're working, you're slaughtering bulls, you're taking this, you're doing that, you're throwing ash out and heaps out in the, outside the temple, and you go back into that basin and you wash. So as the day is going on, and as worship is happening, and as things are going on, that basin goes from this pure, crisp, cool, clean water, and what does it become? Dirty, disgusting, and ultimately, in this thing that was in the temple, it was called the sea. It was massive, this big old pool with thousands of gallons of water in it. But anyways, inside of this thing, as you're washing, this beautiful bronze bowl that was showing and gleaming and had crisp, clean water in it, all of a sudden it gets nasty, dirty, 
full of blood and everything that's on you, ash, soot, guts, whatever, it's just getting filled with that all day long. And it's a reminder of the fact that sin is a corruptible thing. And so in this, you have the same thing that's being used is these ceremonial washing jars that are used for washing for ceremony to show us that sin is corruptible. So the purpose of these jars is to show the corruption that is there in each individual person and is directly related to the law, to the Old Testament law, to the law of Moses, right? So in this, Jesus sees these jars and he's like, okay, God, I see what you're doing. We're going to make a statement about the law, about the water that's in these jars. We're going to make a very bold statement right now. And this is it. He says to the servants, go over and fill those jars with water. And when the jars have been filled, he said, now dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So that the servants followed his instructions. Now, why are they taking water in a jar for ceremonial cleansing to the master of ceremonies? Hopefully not to drink it because that jar is disgusting, right? Like if I'm a servant, I'm like, I'm going to listen to Jesus because that's what Mary told me to do. But at the same time, like, I don't know that he's going to be happy that I'm just bringing him water, right? Because that's not, that's not the purpose. We're not going to have, like, that's not going to be a party. Water in a ceremonial jar, that's already gross enough. Like the water, who knows where they got it from? It doesn't tell us, but where do they get the water from? Doesn't seem to matter. But Jesus is going to take this idea of this jar that's used for ceremonial cleansing and what's going to happen it's going to be radically, molecularly transformed. There's going to be a transformation that completely is opposite from what you expect that transformation to look like. Now, anyone that's heard this story is like, oh, he turns water into wine. Sorry, I gave it away. But anyways, you're like, oh, he turns water into wine. But imagine being the servant that just delivered this water that you poured into a ceremonial jar. And I'm not thinking that I'm too excited to be bringing this to the master of ceremonies that might not be too happy with me when he takes a sip, right? So he can carry it though. And it says this, when the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, I wasn't telling him who I was a servant either, by the way. Um, hey, we got this from the ceremonial washing jar. I'm not drinking that. You know, so like they weren't going to tell him. They're just going to take it. So it says, though, of course, the servants knew because they were the ones that dug it out. He called the bridegroom over. Now, again, we stop in the story. You're like, uh, what's he going to say to the bridegroom? Are we going to get shame? And he's going to all of a sudden, how dare you have only water that's disgusting and full of filth and possibly blood given to me and asked if it's okay to drink, right? I mean, I'm a servant. I'm a little worried, uh, but obviously the story kind of progresses fast enough so we don't have to hold our breath too long. And so it says this, he says, a host always serves the best wine first. And that is true. They did because after people kind of got a little bit used to the wine, then you give the less good wine. So that way people wouldn't know the difference, right? Like, ah, it's still wine. We'll drink it. So anyways, he says, but this, he says, then when everyone's had a lot to drink, he brings out the less expensive wine, but you have kept the best until now. Now imagine the groom who had already served his best wine being told that his best wine was finally being served. I'd be confused if I was the groom. I would ask questions if I was the groom, but at the same time, if I was the groom, 
I might realize I had just been bailed out of a very big problem and I might keep my mouth shut. And so I'm thinking that he's kept his mouth shut. So either way, here we go. This host or the, the, the master of ceremony says, hey, you've given the best wine now. You've given the best wine last. And I think that Jesus would want us to apply that just for a moment and let us know that, hey, the best is yet to come. There are better things ahead. Okay, Once something has happened, once a transformation has happened in your life, due to his will and what he wants. By the way, here it is. Jesus has the power to change you. And when you have been changed, the best is yet to come. Fresh perspective on life. Future perspective is the gates of heaven get opened wide and the blood of Jesus covers you as you walk through. The best is yet to come. It's not about right now. And here's another thing. I read one commentary that said this. Satan is really good at serving the best wine first. Satan is really good at serving the best wine first. That's why we drink it. And then afterwards, you realize that you've run out. Or you have to drink something that doesn't taste so good. But Satan's really good at giving you the best first. He catches you with the bait of it. He wants you, he dangles it in front of you. You take a bite, and then all of a sudden, you might find yourself maybe drinking for a while and enjoying that bite of whatever Satan has dangled in front of you, only to realize that that was the mistake. And then you find yourself wondering, what do I do? I mean, imagine if the groom had heard that his wine had run out. I mean, maybe he's like trying to get people to go. Maybe that's how Mary found out. The groom was like undercover walking around like, hey, Mary, can you kind of ask Jesus to leave? I don't want the son of God to realize I screwed up the wedding. Can you just kind of get him out of here? Mary had a little bit of compassion on that groom for some reason. I think she had a lot of compassion on the bride. Can anyone guess why Mary might have had a lot of compassion on the bride? I want you to think for just a moment. Mary went through being called together and having a contract with Joseph. Mary went through a period of that mikvah, ceremonial washing. Mary stood with Joseph underneath of the hoopah and actually had a ceremony because we find out that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. So she went through every single stage, but what did Mary not actually get to enjoy? Joseph didn't get a chance to call her before they went to Bethlehem. Because we find out that as a virgin, Mary was given the opportunity to have the Son of God. And as a virgin, she was able to conceive. And Joseph considered secretly, which would have been an official divorce. Once you stand under that hoopah, it's an official divorce. He considered secretly divorcing Mary because they were betrothed. And then God said, nope, don't do it. And so Mary walks around before having a ceremony because she never had a Nisuin pregnant. So either Joseph and Mary went off into the field somewhere before Joseph got his house done, or maybe the back of a Ford truck. Anyway, so Joseph and Mary went off in the field somewhere, or somebody else potentially and Mary had some fun. Or we know that what the Bible tells us is that 
She was, she had the immaculate conception of Jesus, the son of God. But imagine telling that story to anyone. So I think that Mary approaching Jesus, whenever she does, just look back at that saying, the wine's run out. Jesus, like, you know, she's going to be shamed. He's going to be shamed. I remember feeling shame. And I'm getting shamed because of what? A system? A system that was set up under the law of Moses? Jesus, I know how that feels. Is there anything you can do? And Jesus is like, my time hasn't come. God's not told me to do a thing, woman. I'm sorry. Like, that's a hard thing to have to say to mom, isn't it? But Jesus is doing what the father's told him to do. And then all of a sudden, God just is like, no, this is it. You see those jars over there, Jesus? That's the law. That's that system that Mary is under. That's that system that everybody knows that they're under. That's that system of you can't do enough and you've got to try over and over and over and over again to please me, okay? Because you're going to consistently and consistently and consistently fail. You're going to take that system, Jesus, and you're going to show that you can molecularly change that water into the best wine that that master of ceremonies has ever tasted in his life as a master of ceremonies. You're going to make every person that's out this wedding just go completely crazy, realizing that they're at and they're drinking the best wine that they've ever drank at a wedding. And we are absolutely not going to be shamed as the bride and as the groom. Because the best is always yet to come. And so with Jesus, he is our groom as the church. And he's telling us as the church that he is preparing a place. He told us that. Actually, we'll see place, a place in Scripture in just a minute. But Jesus tells us that he's preparing a place for us as the church. And the best is yet to come. He tells us that there is going to be a ceremony, a wedding ceremony. It's going to go for seven years. And we're going to get to enjoy this with him as the church, as his bride. And it's going to be the absolute best thing. And it's going to set the standard to show us his ultimate and eternal love for us. It's going to be a very good wedding feast that we're going to get to be a part of because the best is yet to come. So you see this, that this miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was the first time that Jesus revealed his glory. And his disciples that were there, that traveled with him, that met him, that were with John the Baptist, that just got done walking 66 miles, that were kind of on their road, that are like, oh, we don't really know. We haven't seen Jesus do anything too cool yet. They get to be a part of seeing this miracle, and they immediately believe in him. And it says this, that, uh, so this is the first time that Jesus revealed his glory. The first time, according to John, right here in the gospel. If you believe what this gospel of John has to share, including John chapter 3, verse 16, it's important to see that Jesus revealed his glory for the first time. Just saying again, there are some scriptures that show or that say, or there's things that books that were written by whoever that say that Jesus revealed his glory as a kid. Or there are these books that exist that say that, you know, as a kid, this happened and Jesus raised this other kid or his brother from the dead. There's things that exist that say that. There's things that have been written that say that. You may come across them. So I just want you to remember this part of John chapter 2, verse 11, that according to John in chapter 2, verse 11, this is the first time Jesus revealed his glory. He hadn't done any miracle since this time. Okay? 
So anyways, then here's what I want you to see as well. John chapter 12, all right? John chapter 2, verse 12. After the wedding, he went to Capernaum, which is just kind of up to the northeast, just kind of north of the uh, Sea of Galilee. Uh, the Jordan River kind of runs down into the Sea of Galilee, then it runs out through the south, and then it goes to the Dead Sea. Anyway, so he's going to Capernaum for a few days with his mother. So here we go. He's willing to claim mom. Mom, I'm going to go home with you. We're going to hang out with his brothers and his disciples. So all of those were present at this wedding, uh, yet only his disciples, it says in the verse, believed in him. Um, that's interesting, just a thought. Anyway, so <clears throat> Jesus has the power to change you. You simply need to, as Mary might have said to the servants, do whatever he tells you to do. So what did he tell us to do? John chapter 5, verse 24. I tell you the truth, says Jesus, those who listen to my message and believe in God who sent me have eternal life. They will never be condemned for their sins, but they have already passed from death into life. Jesus said that. So you maybe wonder, is there anything I can do? No, there's absolutely nothing that you can do. Um, but Jesus does say, wait, yeah, you could listen to my message. Where's his message found? We know that it's found in the word of God. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, we have copies of the Bible on the table over here where we normally are selling like t-shirts and hats. We don't sell the Bible to you. We give it away for free. If you need a Bible, go grab it and read this message. And if you have the ability to read the message, I hope, also hope that God gives you the ability to believe that he sent his son and that through him you have eternal life. You'll never be condemned, but you've already passed from death into life. John chapter 8, verse 34 through 36. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth. Everyone who sins is a slave of sin, just like we talked about with this black circle. There is nothing that you can do to get away from that sin. That's the idea of being a slave of it, okay? A slave is not a permanent member of the family, but a son is part of the family forever. So if the son sets you free, you are truly free. If the son has the will, the desire to set you free, you'll be truly free. Jesus had the will and the desire because God told him to do it, that that water have a cup dipped in it and carried over to the master of ceremonies. And in that moment, that will, that desire, all that needed to happen was for Jesus to tell the servants to do it. And it happened. They carried it over what he told them to do. Simply, they just, they just carried it. And in that moment, the master of ceremonies drank it. And it was the best wine that could ever be served at a wedding. Jesus simply had the will to have it happen. And the molecular structure of water became the best wine that had ever been tasted by that master of ceremonies at the wedding. John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus told her, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. This is after Lazarus died, by the way, a very good friend of Jesus. And Jesus goes to visit him. And on his way to visit him, Jesus even says to his disciples, hey, Lazarus has died. Let's go see him. And they walk, and then Jesus stands before the tomb where Lazarus is at after three days being dead. He says, Lazarus, go ahead and get up. Get yourself out here. I want to give you a big hug. And Lazarus comes bumbling out of there, and he's all covered in nasty, filthy tape. And I'm sure Jesus gave him a pretty big hug. Don't know anyone else wanted to, um, but maybe after bathing they did. And so he says, I'm the resurrection and the life to Mary and to Martha, to the ones that are there. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. There's proof that Jesus wanted to show us through his teaching, but this is what he's teaching, 
is that after dying, there is life. Whenever we talk about death in scripture, when you see it, if it's a Christian that's died, we simply are referring to it as sleep. Simply are going to sleep because we're going to wake up on the other side of heaven. So we're going to get to enjoy eternity with him. But John chapter 14, just so you know, Jesus is a really good teacher. A lot of people refer to him as rabbi um, in the uh, New Testament. And even still today, there are people that might say Jesus taught some good things. Some people claim the golden rule on their life, do unto others as you'd have them do to, them, uh, do to you. And they claim that, yet Jesus is the one that said it. So they obviously think Jesus is a pretty good teacher. So anyways, Jesus as a good teacher says this in John chapter 14, verse 1 through 6. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust in God. Trust also in me. There is more than enough room in my father's home. If this were not so, would I have told you or would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? So he's like, hey, I'm going to prepare a place. Does that sound familiar? based off of the wedding feast that we just talked about. But he's preparing a place. He's going to eventually come and get us. When everything is ready, I will come to get you so that you will always be with me where I am. And like I said, that coming to get, that actual marriage can happen at any moment. Okay, the preparation for that is always being ready, always expecting, always wanting, always desiring Jesus to come. Do you desire Jesus to come get us right now? is the question there. And if you don't desire Jesus to come and get you right now, check your heart because you should want him to right now. Nothing should be standing in the way. You shouldn't desire anything to be standing in the way. Yes, life here might be fun. It might be great, but the best is yet to come. That's just a simple little dangling of Satan that might say life is good. The waves are good, right? But that's just a dangling right now that the waves are good. He's saying, hey, this is good. You want to hang out? You want to surf that last session because it's such a good swell? And Jesus is like, yeah, but the best is yet to come. Forget about that swell. And you know this in verse 4, and you know the way to where I'm going. He's talking to his disciples. He's like, guys, I've already gone through this. But Thomas, who's one of those disciples, says, no, we don't. We don't know, Lord. He doubts everything, by the way. Uh, you can read about that in the Bible. But anyways, Thomas is like, we don't know. Make it plain. We have no idea where you're going. So how can we know the way? Verse 6, Jesus says, tells him, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. Nobody will come to the Father except through me. I'm going to literally take who you are as a person and change it if you trust me. If you simply will do what I say, if you'll simply trust me, you'll trust the message, what we saw, trust my teaching, what you saw, trust that he is going to come like we saw, trust him as Lord and Savior as your, of your life. Trust that what he did, Jesus died for my sin, but Jesus also died for your sin. In the old law, something had to die. Okay, in the ceremonial washing, part of what they were washing when they were washing blood, it's because they did slit throats of animals, but they were sl slitting throats, okay? They did take out all the guts. Somebody had to do that. They had to wash. They had to throw it onto the fire and burn it, and it became ash. And they took that ash, and they would wheelbarrow it, and somebody had to carry it and get all covered and nasty and sooty, and they had to throw it outside the city. And then they had to come back. They had to wash. Okay, so there is a washing that had to happen in the Old Testament, in the law of Moses and the law that we would have to follow to a T and perfectly 
if it weren't for the blood of Jesus. But the law simply shows us one thing, and that's that we can't do it and that we need God to do it. And if you were to follow every single letter of it and you were to be perfect, then you still would act like Nathaniel did when Nathaniel, who was perfect, Jesus is like, man, this is a guy according to the law. But he still doubted who Jesus was. And Jesus simply revealed who he was through his word. And Nathaniel said, man, you're the son of God. When Peter says, you're the son of God to Jesus, when he professes that Jesus is the son of God, Jesus says, man, upon that statement of who you, what you just said, Peter, I'm going to build my church. That's all that's required. Trusting in me and the power that I have. So the question is, do you believe, first off, this story that we read, that Jesus could take water and molecularly change it to the point where when the guy drank it, it turned into the best wine he ever had? And if you believe that, which by the way, that's, that was easy to believe for the guy that drank it, was it not? Think about that. Think about the groom, just for a second, walking up. Master of Ceremonies immediately says, you have given the best wine at the very end of this party. We are going to continue to celebrate and it is going to be so much better of a celebration. You are going to be talked about for years as having the best wine at this party. And he's right because he was, still is. I'm talking about it right now. Best wine at the end of the party. It's in the Bible. It's talked about for years. It was the best wine. The master of ceremonies got to experience what the servants gave him. And the servants were simply doing what Jesus said. Mary, who has the heart of compassion for the world that she sees right now in the context of what she's living, comes before Jesus and is like, Jesus, can't you do anything? Can't you just do something? Servants, whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Where are you at in that story? Are you like Mary, where you look around and you see the world and you're like, dude, just servants just do something that god tells you to do today do you ever wonder that like just do something you look and you're like i just wish someone would do something about that just please what if mary walked up to jesus and was like jesus i don't know how you're going to do this but whatever you tell me to do i'm going to go do it but there's a, there's no more wine i can't handle it anymore what if mary decided to be the servant but she does look around and she says, there's got to be a servant here that's willing to do exactly what God is telling him to do. Because I can't take the brokenness that I'm seeing anymore. Everything that Jesus ever did, Mary treasured in her heart, by the way, from the moment that she was told about Jesus and the conception. She treasured a lot in her heart. And finally, at the end, when she looks up at Jesus on the cross, she sees him and she's, she, it, it clicks. But at the same time, she treasures a lot in her heart. There's a lot of people in the world treasuring a lot in their heart. And they're simply wondering, are the servants of God going to do something about this? Are they going to do what he says? And then as a servant of God, now, okay, so if we are followers of Jesus, are we doing what he says? And then whenever we do what he says, we have the opportunity to bless somebody. We actually can carry what God has told us to do. We can let the world see it. And when they taste it, they might say, wow, how did you pull that off? How is this the best thing that I've ever experienced? And I've experienced a lot of stuff in my day, right? But how is this the best thing? How can you remain calm under such terrible circumstances? How can you continue to work in this job? It's impossible to work here. How can you continue to work here? How can you deal with this boss? How can you deal with this circumstance? Boss, how can you deal with all of these employees? I can't understand how you're dealing with this. It's going to be seen when we do simply what Jesus has called us to do. People are going to see it. 
And then what's going to happen when they see it? They're going to go and they're going to be like, I just, I just experienced the best thing in my life. I can't believe that I just experienced in this context of what's going on. I just saw the best thing ever. Help me make sense of this. Why did you save the best wine until now? That doesn't make sense. There's going to be somebody touched by simply what Jesus has done through his will. And as a servant, we have the ability to hear what Jesus is saying and just do it. But you've got to hear the word of Jesus. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're hearing the word of Jesus for the very first time, Ethan, you got to stand back up. I need a sign holder. You're hearing the word of Jesus for the very first time. I'm hoping that you're seeing that if you're living in this law of the ceremonial washing, you're just doing the daily routine and the daily motion of life. You are experiencing some good things right now, but you're experiencing the best things first. And you're not going to experience the better in the future. Because in order to experience the better things in the future, in order to experience the better things in the future, Jesus, Jesus has got to be able to say to you, hey, you've got to hear his words and you got to do it. And Jesus just says, hey, trust me. Trust my message. Trust what I'm telling you. And if you trust what I'm telling you, the best is yet to come. And whenever you trust what I'm doing you and you know that the best is yet to come, every person that you ever meet, that should be on your mind, is that I want them to understand that the best is yet to come. And so if you're here this morning and you're not sure about what's yet to come, you don't think it's better, then I have a feeling that you're living for the right now and that Satan is simply dangling something good in front of you and you're afraid that it's going to be gone tomorrow. If you're afraid that something good right now is going to be gone tomorrow, I just ask you, just trust Jesus that something better is coming. I'm not saying that a financial situation is going to change and you're going to be rich. Okay? Sorry, I hate to tell you that, but that's still only for right now. That's not for what's yet to come. Because God tells us that he's not only, like, we walk on gold in heaven. All right? It's the streets. It's under our feet. The pearls that are just, like, miles high are the gates. They just kind of are around us so we can see and it can reflect the glory of God. But the glory of God is at the center. That's where all the focus always goes in heaven. So in heaven, what we experience here that's good compares very little, or what we think is good will compare very little to the glory of God in heaven for all of eternity. And that's what we have to look forward to. So if you don't have all of eternity to look forward to, if you've just got maybe 100 years to look forward to, my plea for you is get into the word of God and find out what there is in all of eternity, because Jesus tells us about it. And it's so much better than what you're experiencing right now. Will you pray with me? Father, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you so much for who you are. And I just thank you so much that, man, the best is yet to come. God, of all the places that you could have done your very first miracle, you did it at a wedding. And God, you're promising us that as your bride, we're going through that right now. And right now, God, I have the opportunity to be here and I have the opportunity to tell others about you and get excited. And God, right now I have the opportunity to just be like patiently waiting for that moment when you're just going to show up. You're just waiting for the father to tell you it's time to go. When you're ready, when he's ready. Father, right now there's so much patience 
And I believe, I have to believe, you're being patient for just one person in this room. One person that needs to surrender to you and just be like, that's it, I'm all in. Jesus, I trust you. Jesus, I want something better in the future because I'm tired of what's being dangled in me as being good for right now. Father, I just ask that that person surrender their life to you this morning. Father, if they want to share that with me later, I'd love it. But Father, at the same time, for those of us that are here that know it, for those of us that are here that know that the best is yet to come, help us to live like that this week. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.